0: Do you have a ghost story, one that happened to you, or maybe an urban legend you know? Share with us. Send it through Messenger or email us at odditiesandcuriositiespod at gmail.com. We will be doing a bonus episode for Halloween with listener stories. The cutoff date for the listener stories is October 21st. So get them in, y'all! This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners.
1: Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities sure to pique your curiosity. We are Amanda and Brittany. (laughs) This is episode seventeen.
0: My goodness! Oh my
1: gosh! What what is episode (laughs) seventeen?
0: Stockholm syndrome. (laughs) Yeah. We are coming to you on Wednesday, so you know what that means. Hump day. Hump day. Time for a treat.
1: Yes, hump day treats. Okay. Well, this week we needed some um, sonic therapy. <laughs> and plus they have these new slushies out, so I went and got the peach bellini and the strawberry frose. They are lovely. Oh my goodness, so good. Uh my daughter drank the sangria one. It had actual strawberries in it though. It was it wasn't bad. It was a little sweet for me. Yeah. But it wasn't bad, and I got a buttload of cheese sticks.
0: She is not
1: kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I got
0: I got two large orders. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how hungry she thinks we are.
1: I don't, I was super hungry <laughs> when I ordered them. Okay,
0: it's fine. Yeah, so we got those easy peasy,
1: scrumptious and greasy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I Holiday treats. <laughs>
0: I can <laughs> Yeah this this is gonna be a shit show. <laughs> Buckle up, buddies. <laughs>
1: um. Yeah. So we're doing a
0: case this week. Oh, first you're gonna want to follow us on the social media things. <laughs> I was if, trying to get it out. It just wasn't coming. <laughs> if you'd like to see pictures. From our cases this week. Mm-hmm. Um, go to the Facebook at Oddities and Curiosities Podcast and right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and Insta- we'll get it eventually. <laughs> and Instagram at Oddities and Curiosities Pod. Yeah. That's where all the lovely pictures are. Yes. Check out the pictures. Mm-hmm. So, like we said, we're doing uh, Stockholm Syndrome this week. Mm hmm. So, I thought before I jumped into my case, we'd talk a little bit about what exactly Stockholm Syndrome is. Yeah, let's learn some stuff. So, it's a condition in which hostages develop a psychological bond with their captors during captivity. Stockholm Syndrome results from a specific set of circumstances, especially the power imbalances present in hostage-taking, kidnapping, and abusive relationships. So, you know, there's, like, one person that's dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, it is difficult to find a large number of people who experience Stockholm Syndrome to be able to conduct studies. This makes it hard to determine trends in the development and effects of the condition. Emotional bonds may be formed between captors and captives during intimate time together, but these are generally considered irrational in light of the danger or risk endured by the victims.
1: Okay. That makes sense.
0: Stockholm syndrome has never been included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders.
1: I don't know why the hell not.
0: <laughs> that, If you don't know what that is, that's the standard tool for diagnosis of psychiatric illnesses and disorders in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mainly due to the lack of consistent body of academic research. The syndrome is rare. According to data from the FBI, only about 5% of hostage victims show evidence of Stockholm Syndrome. So that's why they have trouble doing the studies, because there's not very many cases. Well. it makes it hard to determine. Okay. Um, The term Stockholm Syndrome was first used by the media in 1973, when four hostages were taken during a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. uh -huh huh if you want to go look at the notes, I do have a quick picture. Um, it says Stockholm robbery.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, of oh, a couple sh- of the victims uh, in a bank vault. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So that oh, was is like... That a kid? No, it's um, four bank tellers. It's people that work there.
1: Oh, it just... I couldn't... Okay, when I blew it up, I could see it better. Oh. Never
0: mind. <laughs> it's fine. Um, the hostages... So, okay, back up. I didn't put this in there, but what it was, was a man was trying to rob the bank, and he put four tellers in the vault, and something went awry, and they ended up being stuck in there for like five days. <gasps> yeah. Oh, shit. So, um The hostages defended their captors after being released and would not agree to testify in court against them. Anybody it was- else have the what the fuck face going on right now? <laughs> It was noted that in this case, however, the police were perceived to have acted with little care for the hostages' safety, providing an alternative reason for their unwillingness to testify. So they had bonded with them, and they felt like the police had done them wrong. So, Okay. Okay. Yeah. Stockholm Syndrome is paradoxical because the sympathetic sentiments that captives feel towards their captors are the opposite of the fear and disdain which an onlooker might feel towards the captors. So when you're actually in the moment, you develop the opposite feelings as what someone on the outside looking in mm. would perceive your feelings should be. It's weird. I mean, you don't know till you're yeah. in that situation. There are four key components that characterize Stockholm Syndrome. One is a hostage's development of positive feelings towards the captor. No previous relationship between the hostage and captor. A refusal by hostages to cooperate with police forces and other government authorities. Mm-hmm. And lastly, a hostage's belief in the humanity of the captor, ceasing to perceive them as a threat when the victim holds the same values as the aggressor. So if they feel like they have things in common,
1: <laughs> <Okay>. yeah,
0: <laughs> and they can see the good in them, they can mm-hmm. see the good in their captor, whatevs. Yeah. you can. Have- <laughs> <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome is a contested illness due to doubt about the legitimacy of the condition. It has also come to describe the reactions of some abuse. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it has also come to describe the reactions of some abuse victims beyond the context of kidnappings or hostage taking. Actions and attitudes similar to those suffering from Stockholm Syndrome have also been found in victims of sexual abuse, human traffic trafficking, extremism, terrorism, economic oppression, financial repression, political repression, and religious persecution. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's so much. This is because Stockholm Syndrome can be argued as another method of coping with the stress and danger, similar to some forms of coping, in that the participants do not directly address the problem but find a way to cope with the situation by identifying with the aggressor. Coping mechanisms such as these can have large impact on PTSD. Okay, now that one, I can
1: understand, like, yeah. how that would develop out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
0: For me, when, the cases that it's hard for me to understand is when you've been with them such a short period of time. Like, right. Like the bank thing. Yeah. It's like five days. Now, I understand it's close quarters, and y'all are the only people there, and, you know, whatever. Right but like but, Elizabeth Smart when it's several years it's different. Yeah. 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 So that I, I get it. But that's what Stockholm syndrome is. Good Here Lord. We go. So, the case I have chosen is Miss Patty Hearst. Yeah, yeah. So some of y'all may have heard of her. If not, I'm going to tell you. Yeah. So I know her, but I don't know all the
1: details, so I'm so excited. See,
0: that was me, too. Like, I sort of knew, but I didn't know. I didn't know everything, for Mm -mm. sure. Okay, so Patricia Campbell Hurst is an American author and actress and a granddaughter of American publishing mogul William Randolph Hurst. She first became known for the events following her 1974 kidnapping by the Symbionese Liberation Army, or S.L.A., that's what I'll be calling could you it. you
1: you pronouncing words. I know. <laughs>
0: um, but SLA is what I'll refer to it. Okay. Throughout the... Throughout my case. Yeah, that works. <laughs> um, when a now iconic photo of Hearst, armed with a machine gun, made the cover of Time and Newsweek, it captivated the nation as her story blurred the line between victim and accomplice. Yeah. If you want to go to the notes, I actually have two pictures I want to show you. Okay. Um, the first one is the Time Magazine cover. Yes. So there that is. Y'all. Yeah. There's a drawing and two photos, and she is holding weapons in both photos. Yes, bitch. Um, and the other one says Patty Hearst machine gun. That's the iconic photo, just the photo itself. Yeah. Yeah. My God. I know. She's beautiful. Yes, yeah, she is. Oh my god, she's like a chameleon too. She looks different all the time. I
1: know that it took me a second. I was like, wait, that's wait. <laughs>
0: you yeah, know, it you is gotta look at the bone structure, and then you're like, oh yeah, okay, that's yeah. The it
1: took me a second. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so um, she was found and arrested 19 months after being abducted, and was a fugitive wanted for serious crimes committed with members of the group. She was held in custody, and there was a speculation before trial that her family's resources would enable her to avoid. Time in prison. Mm. At her trial, the prosecution suggested that Hearst joined the SLA of her own volition. However, she testified that she had been raped and threatened with death while held captive. In 1976, she was convicted for the crime of bank robbery and sentenced to 35 years in prison, later reduced to seven years. Her sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter, and she was later pardoned by President Bill Clinton. All right, so let's get into the meat and potatoes of the story. Yeah, yeah. Patricia Hearst, who prefers to be called Patricia rather than Patty, even though people keep calling her Patty, was born on February 20th, 1954 in San Francisco, California, the third of five daughters of Randolph Apperson Hearst and Catherine Wood Campbell. She grew up primarily in Hillsboro and attended its Crystal Springs School for Girls and the Santa Catalina School in Monterey. She attended Menlo College in Atherton, California, before transferring to the University of California in Berkeley. Yay! Hearst's father was only one of a number of heirs and did not have control of of the Hearst interests, so her parents did not consider it necessary to take measures for their children's personal security. So, yes, the Hearst family is loaded, Mm -hmm. but it's her grandfather that has all the money. Her dad is not the next in line. Oh, so he don't get it. He has a lot of siblings. So there's really not really a next in line at the moment. So they didn't feel like, since he wasn't one of the older, they didn't feel like their family's security would be in jeopardy because it's not like... Okay. They have the cash. Okay. They don't have any money. I mean, they have money, but you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) they didn't feel like it was an immediate threat because they didn't have the fortune and they didn't have access to the fortune. Okay. So they didn't spring for any kind of special security detail because they didn't feel like their family needed it.
1: I get that, but I mean, like, are there other people that would have been
0: aware of that? I don't know. I mean, like, people. I'm just reading you what I found on the interweb. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. It just made it a point to say that he wasn't next in line. I'm talking so about- they didn't feel like they had to take any special measures for their family's safety. Okay. What I meant was, <laughs> let me clarify, like people outside of the family. Well, they probably saw that they weren't walking around with a security detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have see you walk around all the time and you don't have security detail. You don't know my life But the the president walks around And you you see he's got a security detail That's
1: true But I could just be hiding it You don't know I could have won the lottery And not told a soul I'm still living like I'm living
0: No, you're too extra for that shit (laughs) You are too extra Everybody would know True It's true (laughs) She'd be like, come on, honey Let's go buy some diamonds Come (laughs) jump in my bright red Corvette Oh, hell no No, no, no Okay, black, whatever (laughs) <laughs> Come jump in my black Corvette. <laughs> I won a lottery. I'd have a purple sparkly one. Oh Jesus! This is what I put up with every day. It's my weekend car. Oh my God! Can I have a Monday go, car, a Tuesday car. This is my weekend car. Let's go to my weekend chateau, my country home, <laughs> my country cat <laughs> What do you mean I'm acting different? There's nothing different. Oh, I just bought us a castle in Scotland, though. Look let's, let's here, let's go have a tissue bag. <laughs> You just open up your trunk and there's all these designer bags. Which one do you want, Gucci? <laughs> Louie? Which want want one? <laughs> <laughs> just pick one. Okay, maybe a little bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, back on track. At the time of her abduction, Hearst was a sophomore at Berkeley studying art history. She lived with her fiance, Stephen Weed. Pause for laughter. I love the name. <laughs> 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 yeah, my eyes got real big. Hey. <laughs> I knew there would be some sort of reaction to that. We need, we need to be friends. <laughs> um, she lived with her fiancé, Stephen Weed, in an apartment in Berkeley. On February 4th, 1974, 19-year-old Hearst was kidnapped from her apartment. An urban guerrilla left-wing group called the Symbionese Liberation Army claimed responsibility for the abduction. Her kidnapping was partly opportunistic as she happened to live near the SLA hideout. Oh, great. According to testimony at trial, the group's main intention was to leverage the Hearst family's political influence to free two SLA members who had been arrested for Marcus Foster's killing. Now, my case was already too long, so I did not dive into the Marcus Foster situation, so I don't know what that was. Y'all can study that on your own. Yeah. Give it a goog. (laughs) (laughs) Faced with the failure to free the imprisoned men, the SLA demanded that the captive's family distribute $70 worth of food to every needy Californian, an operation that would cost an estimated $400 million. (laughs) Damn! (laughs) In response... Hearst's father took out a loan And arranged the immediate donation Of $2 million worth of food To the poor of the Bay Area In an operation called quote, People in need After the distribution descended into chaos The SLA refused to release Hearst What the It didn't go how they wanted it to go Plus they asked for $400, 400 million million. And maybe all he was able to do At the moment was A measly $2 million uh-huh. That put, all Yeah According to Hearst's later testimony, she was held for a week in a closet, blindfolded with her hands tied, during which time SLA founder and leader, Sink, I guess is his nickname, but his name is Donald DeFreeze, repeatedly threatened her death.
1: I want to call him Mr. Freeze instead. <laughs>
0: okay. Okay. Repeatedly threatened her with death. Um, she was let out for meals and blindfolded and subsequently began to join in the political discussions. She was given a flashlight for reading and SLA political tracts to memorize. Hearst was confined in the closet for weeks after which she said, quote, DeFreeze told me that the War Council had decided or was thinking about killing me or me staying with them and that I better start thinking about that as a possibility, end quote. Herst, well, give can't. him the choices, <laughs> hmm. right? Hurst uh, also said, "quote I accommodated my thoughts to coincide with theirs." End quote. So she wanted to live. So, so she was going to, yeah, she was going to think like they think, so they don't kill her. Whew. Um, but in a different account, Hearst said she had been offered the choice of being released or joining the SLA. So, in one account, she says they were going to kill her. And in another account, she said she was going to be released. What the? F- I know. So, I don't know what's correct. Because she said two different things. Hmm. There's a couple little fishy things in here. Yeah. When asked for the decision, Hearst said she wanted to stay and fight with the SLA. So, regardless what her choice was, like, or what her choices were, she decided to stay with them. The blindfold was removed, allowing her to see her captors for the first time. After this, she was given daily lessons on her duties, especially weapon drills. Angela Atwood told Hearst that the others thought she should know what sexual freedom was like in the unit. Huh. According to her lawyer, Hearst was allegedly raped by William Willie Wolfe and later by Mr. Freeze. No. Yeah. That's what this is all That that whole paragraph is all b- kind of fucked up right there Yep Okay <laughs> Just wait, there's more mm. On April 3rd, 1974 Two months after she was abducted Hearst publicly renounced her family and friends Declaring her allegiance to the ragtag revolutionary group That had ad- abducted her And took the name Tanya So that was her new name Okay She wasn't going to be Patty Hearst anymore She was Tanya All right. (laughs) Name changing. (laughs) (laughs) On April 15th, 1974, Hearst was recorded on surveillance video wielding an M1 carbine while robbing the Sunset District branch of the Hibernia Bank. If you go to the notes. Yeah. You can see surveillance footage. It says, Hearst, Hibernia, (laughs) yell. (laughs) <laughs> well, okay. that's what they had named it on the website that I got it from, and I just left it because apparently that's her yelling at people with a gun in her hand. Okay. On the surveillance footage. <laughs> I like it. Hearst <laughs> had
1: Bernier yell. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I see. Is that one of the other yeah.
0: guys? She the- wasn't alone. There okay. Were, there were others. Okay. Hurst identified under her pseudonym of Tanya yelling... Quote, I'm Tanya, up, up, up against the wall, motherfuckers, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, bitch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two men entered the bank while the robbery was occurring and were shot and wounded. According to testimony at her trial, a witness thought that Hurst had been several paces behind the others when running to the getaway car. So they tried to say, like, she was thinking about escaping. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... On May 16th, 1974, the manager, um, so this is like a month, almost exactly a month after the bank robbery. Okay. On May 16th, 1974, the manager at Mills Sporting Goods in Inglewood, California observed a minor theft by William Harris, who had been shopping with his wife, Emily, while Hearst waited across the road in a van. The manager and an employee followed Harris out and confronted him. There was a scuffle, and the manager restrained Harris when a pistol fell out of Harris's waistband. Wow, well, shit. Hearst discharged the entire magazine of an automatic carbine into the storefront, causing the manager to dive behind a light post. He tried to shoot back, but Hearst began aiming closer.
1: Okay, so did they go to the
0: shooting range and teach her how to shoot, or damn, yeah, that woman? <laughs> that was one of her lessons Holy that um, shit. they were making her do on when she decided to stay. Okay. Yeah, weapons training. Nice. Um, I mean, not nice, but damn. <laughs> yeah. She had to learn that before she learned her sexual freedom.
1: Mm.
0: Hearst and the Harris couple hijacked two cars and abducted the owners. One was a young man who found Hearst so personable that he was reluctant to report the incident. (laughs) (laughs) He testified at the trial to her discussing the effectiveness of cyanide-tipped bullets and repeatedly asking if he was okay. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's like night and day, those two conversations. Police had surrounded the main base of the SLA before the three returned, so they hid elsewhere. The six SLA members inside the hideout died, some in a gunfight with police and others in a resulting fire. Oh. It was initially thought that Hearst had also died during the confrontation. A warrant was then issued for Hurst's arrest after several felonies, including two counts of kidnapping. So now she was... Now she's got yeah. the kidnapping charges. Okay. Emily Harris went to a Berkeley rally to commemorate the deaths of Angela Atwood and other founding members of the SLA who had died during the police siege. Harris recognized Atwood's acquaintance, uh, Kathy Celaya, among the Radicals whom she'd known from the civil rights groups. Celaya introduced the three fugitives to Jack Scott, an athletics coach and Radical, and he agreed to provide help and money. So I know that's a lot of names, but the two people that she did the sporting goods store with the Harris couple william and emily okay the wife went to a rally to commemorate all the people that had died in the police siege okay and okay. while she was there she found an acquaintance who introduced her to a guy jack scott who was an athletics coach at the college <laughs> and a radical and he agreed to provide help and money to them to help hide them, I guess. Okay, because they were still, the police were still looking for them Okay, I needed that. Thank you. <laughs> so I, was, I like, saw your face. <gasps> it's a lot of names. It was a lot for a second. hearst helped make improvised explosive devices. These were used in two unsuccessful attempts to kill police officers during August 1975. And one of the devices failed to detonate. That is not flying under the radar. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> no,
1: it's not. That's why I was laughing.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So they got caught because of the bomb thing. And marked money that was found in the apartment when she was arrested linked Hearst to the SLA armed robbery of Crocker National Bank in Carmichael, California. So another robbery. She My was God. the getaway car driver for that one. Be um, Be smarter. Myrna Opsal. (laughs) That's a terrible name. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Who was at the bank making a deposit was shot dead by a masked Emily Harris. Oh. Hearst was potentially at risk for felony murder charges and could testify as a witness against Harris for a capital offense. So at that robbery, her accomplice, Emily, killed a woman. And so she could be in trouble for that too. Uh huh. Guilty by association. Girl, that's why your mom tells you to be choosy about who you hang around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I never listened, but oh, I did. It not was there at all. <laughs> On September eighteenth, nineteen seventy five, Hearst was arrested in a San Francisco apartment with Wendy Yoshimura, another SLA member. While being booked into jail, Hearst listed her occupation as quote urban gorilla. <laughs> And asked her attorney to relay the following message. Quote, tell everybody that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong, and I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. End quote. Okay. Yeah. So, if you want to go to the notes one, and look one at. One big
1: happy family. Patty,
0: her smug shot. She looking rough. Uh, yeah, girl. Come on. She looking rough. She looks older. She does. That's. What the... Mm Mm-hmm. It's bad. At the time of her arrest, Hearst's weight had dropped to 87 pounds. And she was described by psychologist Margaret Singer in October 1975 as, quote, a low IQ, low effect zombie, end quote. Wow. Yeah. Shortly after her arrest, signs of trauma were recorded. Her IQ was measured as 112, whereas it had previously been 130. There were huge gaps in her memory regarding her pre-Tanya life. Ah. She was smoking heavily and had nightmares. Without a mental illness or defect, a person is considered to be fully responsible for any criminal action not done under duress, which is defined as a clear and present threat of death or serious injury. So. Okay. They're saying there was no clear and present threat of death. Okay. Okay for Hearst to secure an acquittal on the grounds of having been brainwashed would have been completely unprecedented. Okay, that's what I was just about to ask. Yeah. Okay. Psychiatrist uh, Louis Joyon West, a professor at UCLA, was appointed by the court in his capacity as a brainwashing expert and worked without a fee. After the trial, he wrote a newspaper article asking President Carter to release Hearst from prison. So he believed that she had been brainwashed. Hearst wrote in her memoir, Every Secret Thing, another book we should probably read. On the list. Yeah. (laughs) Quote, I spent 15 hours going over my SLA experiences with Robert J. Lifton of Yale University. Lifton, author of several books on coercive persuasion and thought reform, pronounced me a classic case which met all the psychological criteria of a coer- coerced prisoner of war. If I had reacted differently, that would have been suspect, he said. End quote. Mm-hmm. After a while, Hearst uh, reputed her SLA allegiance. So after a while of being... Being away from it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Her first lawyer, Terrence... Halanon? Halanon? Yeah. Terrence? Yeah. <laughs> had advised hers not to talk to anyone, including psychiatrists. He advocated a defense of involuntary intoxication that the SLA had given her drugs that affected her judgment and recollection. He was replaced by attorney F. Lee Bailey. (laughs) 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 Who Who asserted a defense of coercion or duress affecting intent at the time of offense this was similar to the brainwashing defense which halanon had warned was not a defense in the law hearst gave long interviews to various psychiatrists she pretty much said no i'm not gonna lie they didn't feed me drugs i was brainwashed we're doing that
1: yeah i was about to say wait did they feed Mm -mm. her drugs okay
0: no the first lawyer was like you're not gonna win that way and so he was trying to so she got rid of him yeah yeah i mean yeah Y- y- don't lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they put you in jail for that. Yeah. Hearst <laughs> alone was arraigned for the Hibernia Bank robbery. The trial commenced on January 15th, 1976. Um, Judge Oliver Jesse Carter, who happened to be a professional acquaintance of a junior member of the prosecution team.
1: Oh, nice. So he's
0: buddies with the prosecution.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, he ruled that Hearst taped and written statements after the bank robbery while she was a fugitive with the SLA members, were voluntary. He did not allow expert testimony that the Tanya statements and writing were not wholly composed by Hearst. He permitted the prosecution to introduce statements and actions Hearst made long after the Hibernia robbery as evidence of her state of mind at the time of the robbery. Judge Carter also allowed into evidence a recording made by jail authorities of a friend's jail visit with Hearst in which Hearst used profanities and spoke of her radical and feminist beliefs. But he did not allow tapes of psychi- psychiatrist Louie um, Joyam West's interviews of Hearst to be heard by the jury. So secret taped conversations with her friends, he let the jury hear. Mm. Interviews with psychologists or psychiatrists, he did not let the jury hear.
1: Craig. yeah.
0: <laughs> Judge Carter was described as resting his eyes during testimony favorable to the defense. So if it made Patty Hearst look good at all, he, he took a nap. Mm-hmm, he was just like, I'm so over it, and what yeah, a little didn't pay attention. Bitch. I know. I don't like him. Fuck that guy. He's on the shit list. All right. Well, he's dead. what I was so. saying, he's probably dead by now, so... <laughs> he is. I cut that part out. Okay. Yeah, he died. <laughs> According to Hearst's testimony, her captors had demanded she appear enthusiastic during the robbery and warned she would pay with her life for any mistake. Her defense lawyer, Effley Bailey, provided photographs showing that SLA members, including Camilla Hall, had pointed guns at Hearst during the robbery. In reference to the shooting at Mel's Sporting Goods store and her decision to not escape, Hearst testified that she was instructed throughout her captivity on what to do in an emergency. She said one class in particular had a situation similar to the store manager's uh, detention of the Harris's. Hearst testified that, quote, when it happened, I didn't even think. I just did it. And if I had not done it and if they had been able to get away, they would have killed me. End quote. Yeah. So, she was afraid for her life. That's why she didn't try to flee. It makes sense. Yeah. Testifying for the prosecution, Dr. Harry Kozal C- <laughs> <laughs> said Hearst had been, quote, a rebel in search of a cause, end quote. And her participation in the Hibernia robbery had been an act of free will. Prosecutor James L. Browning Jr. asked the other psychiatrist testifying for the prosecution, Dr. Joel Fort, if Hearst was in fear of death or great bodily injury during the robbery, to which he answered no. But her lawyer angrily objected. Yeah. She had guns pointed at her. Right. Fort assessed Hearst as immoral and said she had voluntary sex with Wolf and Mr. Freeze, which Hearst denied both in court and outside. Prosecutor Browning tried to show that writings by Hearst indicated her testimony had misrepresented her actions with Wolf. She said she had been writing the SLA version of events and had been punched in the face by William Harris when she refused to be more gracious about what she regarded as sexual abuse by Wolf. So they forced her to write Uh things the way she did. Yeah. Judge Carter allowed testimony from the prosecution psychiatrist about her early sexual experiences although these had occurred years before her kidnapping and the bank robbery. So the prosecution is trying to slander her as a whore pretty much yeah. and the judge is just letting it happen.
1: I mean, is it just because like I mean it was back in 1970 what? 5 3 yeah. whatever. So, I, I mean, I can understand that, like, these cases weren't very common. So, and it was since a, they weren't familiar with it. They're probably like, oh, she's full of bullshit. It was a
0: screw women era. Uh huh. And she was a quote unquote entitled rich girl. Right. You know? Right. So, whatevs. Um, in court, Hearst made a poor impression and appeared lethargic. An Associated Press report attributed this state to drugs that she was given by jail doctors. Bailey was strongly criticized. That's her lawyer. Mm -hmm. He was strongly criticized for his decision to put Hearst on the stand, then having her repeatedly declined to answer questions. So the day that she was being put on the stand, they pretty much drugged her up uh, at the jail before they sent her to court. After a few months, Hearst provided information to the authorities not under oath because sworn testimony could have been used to convict her Mm -hmm. um, of SLA activities. After Hearst testified that Wolf had raped her, Emily Harris gave a magazine interview from jail alleging that Hearst's keeping of a trinket given to her by Wolf was an indication that she had been in a romantic relationship with him. Oh, my God, Emily. Emily. Hearst said she had kept the stone carving because she thought it was a pre-Columbian artifact of archaeological significance. So apparently, Rapist Man Wolf gave her the stone carving and told her it was some like special, you know, archaeological find. And so she kept it, but they're trying to use that against her as... Uh, proof that she was in a relationship with him And he didn't rape her I'm sorry well, you But you what? can be in a relationship with someone And they still rape you So
1: Uh yeah It happens all the time
0: yeah. Whatever people
1: and This is a bunch of he said garbage. she said bullshit So much garbage Like they can't They can't prove that he didn't rape her mm-hmm. Like it, there's no proof of that So And they, usually they you hell listen
0: hell to your victim Yes But Fuckers sorry. Right mm. The prosecutor, James L. Browning Jr., used Harris's interpretation of the item, and some jurors later said that they regarded the carving, which Browning waved in front of them at court, as powerful evidence that Hearst was lying. I'm doing a lot of eye rolls over here. I know. It's ridiculous. In a closing uh, prosecution statement that hardly acknowledged that Hearst had been kidnapped and held captive in the first place... Prosecutor Browning suggested that Hearst had taken part in the bank robbery without coercion. Browning also suggested to the jury that as the female SLA members were feminists, they would not have allowed Hearst to be raped.
1: I can't.
0: Are you kidding? (laughs) I cannot with these people. (laughs) Women can be garbage too. Ah, yes. And if they're brainwashed by these fuck boys, then they're not going to get in the middle of that. That's true. hmm mm-hmm. In her autobiography, Hearst expressed disappointment with what she saw as Bailey's lack of focus in the crucial end stage of her trial. She described him as having the appearance of someone with a hangover and spilling water down the front of his pants while making a disjointed closing argument. He was probably stressed the fuck out I mean- over this case. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Bailey's final statement to the court was, quote, but simple application of the rules, I think, will yield one decent result, and that is, there is not anything close to proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Patty Hearst wanted to be a bank robber. What you know, and you know in your hearts to be true, is beyond dispute. There was talk about her dying, and she wanted to survive, end quote. I think that was a great
1: closing statement, I know. actually. I think
0: you did good, Bailey. You summed it up very mm-hmm right on target on march 20th 1976 hearst was convicted of bank robbery and using a firearm during the commission of a felony she was given the maximum sentence possible of 35 years imprisonment pending a reduction at the final sentence hearing which carter declined to specify okay so the judge was like yeah we're gonna do a final sentence hearing but i'm not sure when so. Just let her sit there. Hearst suffered a collapsed lung in prison, the beginning of a series of medical problems, and she underwent emergency surgery. This prevented her from appearing to testify against the Harrises on 11 charges, including robbery, kidnapping, and assault. So then she was also arraigned for those charges. Cause she was wait, gonna- Wait a minute, why didn't they put that off? Garbage! Mm. I know. <laughs> I know it's all garbage (laughs) This whole thing They
1: could have postponed that That's why we need to read
0: the Patty Hearst book (gasps) Or Patricia Yeah Patricia Patricia. Um She was held in solitary confinement for security reasons She was granted bail for an appeal hearing in November 1976 On the condition that she was protected on bond Her father hired dozens of bodyguards um, Superior Court Judge Talbot Callister gave her probation on the sporting goods store charge when she pleaded no contest, saying that he believed that she had been subject to coercion amounting to torture. So they're saying, like, they pretty much forced her to do it by torturing her. Wow, look, somebody. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Superior Court Judge Talbot. Talbot Callister. <laughs> California Attorney General Avell J. Younger said that if there was a double standard for the wealthy, it was the opposite of what was generally believed and that Hearst had received a stiffer sentence than a person of lesser means might have. Mm -hmm. He said that she had no legal brainwashing defense, but pointed out that the events had started with her being kidnapped.
1: Right. She didn't do that before she was in
0: there. Right. And she wouldn't have if she had not been kidnapped. hmm So he's saying, I don't think you were brainwashed, but I think maybe you were coerced into this. Right. Um, Hearst's bail was revoked in May 1978 when appeals failed and the Supreme Court declined to hear her case.
1: Come on people. The
0: prison took no special security measures for her safety until she found a dead rat on her bunk on the day when William and Emily Harris were arraigned for her abduction. Oh, mm-hmm. really? The Harrises were convicted yeah. on simple kidnapping, on a simple kidnapping charge, as opposed to the more serious kidnapping for ransom or kidnapping with bodily injury, and they were released after serving a total of 8 years each. Really? For Willsies. That's what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, now, here's kind of a weird thing. Okay. This whole paragraph's kind of like a, whoa. Um, representative Leo Ryan. I don't know if you know who that is. I don't. Should I? Okay. Well, but I'm fixing to tell you. Okay. Representative Leo Ryan was collecting signatures on a petition for Hearst's release several weeks before he was murdered while visiting the Jonestown settlement in Guyana. That was the representative that went to Guyana to try to help... The people escaped Jonestown,
1: okay. and he was killed okay. over there. Okay. Yeah, I just re-listened to that one Tuesday. Yeah. Actually. I've
0: read a book on it. It's fabulous. I oh have my it. God. I'll have to let you borrow it. Okay. <laughs> See, I've already started our book club. <laughs> okay. Another little funny tidbit. Actor John Wayne spoke after the Jonestown cult deaths, pointing out that people had accepted that Jim Jones had brainwashed 900 individuals into mass suicide, but would not accept that the SLA could have brainwashed a kidnapped teenage girl. Thank you, John Wayne. Right. Some
1: people have brains. How about mm-hmm. that? Wow. wow well wow, said, wow. cowboy. Well yeah. said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was it pilgrim i'm sure he said both (laughs) 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 president jimmy carter commuted her federal sentence to the 22 months served freeing her eight months before she was eligible for her first parole hearing so jimmy carter let her out her release on february 1st 1979 was under strict conditions and she remained on probation for the state sentence on the sporting goods store plea okay she recovered full civil rights when President Bill Clinton granted her pardon on January 20th, 2001, his last day in office. Fabulous. Two months after her release from prison, Hearst married Bernard Lee Shaw, a policeman who was part of her security detail during her time on bail. Yeah. So if you want to go to the notes, I got a picture of Patty and Bernard on their wedding day. Are they precious? Yes. In her little white pumps. I love it. <laughs> She's so beautiful. She looks so happy. I know. They had two children, Jillian and Lydia Hurst Shaw. Hurst became involved in a foundation helping children with AIDS and is active in other charities and fundraising activities. Hurst published the memoir, Every Secret Thing, co-written with Alvin Moscow in 1981. Her accounts resulted in authorities considering bringing new charges against her. What? Because she had... Detailed what had happened to her and where's the statute of limitations? I know it's <laughs> ridiculous. She was interviewed in 2009 on NBC and said that the prosecutor has, had suggested that she had been in a consensual relationship with Wolf. Get over this, people. She described that as outrageous and an insult to rape victims.
1: It doesn't matter if it was consensual to or not to me because she was. In a situation where she was trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And he was going to do it whether she consented or not. Mm-hmm. So, she probably just kind of laid there and took it. Yeah. After Because a while. what do
0: you do? Yeah, exactly. Oy. Shut up, people. Hearst produced a special for the Travel Channel titled Secrets of San Simeon with Patricia Hearst. In which she took viewers inside her grandfather's mansion, Hearst Castle, providing unprecedented access to the property. Ooh, I know. I'm almost done. Okay. Two paragraphs. She has appeared in feature films for director John Waters, who cast her in Crybaby, Serial <gasps> Mom, Pecker, <laughs> Cecil B. Demented, and A Dirty Shame oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go back and watch Crybaby. If you want to uh, go look at the notes, there's one that says Hearst 1994. This is what she looked like when she was in the midst of filming these movies and stuff. <gasps> I know. Ex- okay.
1: I think I remember. I haven't
0: seen any of those movies.
1: Crybaby is. Oh God. <laughs> I haven't seen any of them. You might want to be drunk for that one. <laughs> it's. It's got Johnny Depp in it. I love him. Mm, it's when he was young and hot. I don't know. He's pretty. He's, I mean, he's still he, pretty. He's kept his.
0: He's kept his hotness. But he was he was a baby when he made that one. Let's see. Um, she collaborated with Cordelia Frances Biddle on writing the novel Murder at San Simeon, based upon the death of Thomas H. Entz on her grandfather's yacht. Okay. That sounds like something we should probably read, too. Uh-huh. She also appeared in the episode of Lord of the Pies in Season 3 of Veronica Mars. Okay. The character was the heiress of a fictionalized Hearst family, loosely <laughs> based on aspects of her life. I that was a fun role. Right. Hearst also made a cameo in Polly Shore's film Biodome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> What's Patty Hearst doing now? What is she doing? (laughs) Well, I can tell you what she was doing in 2015. That's as close as I can get. (laughs) But. That's okay. Hearst has participated with her dogs in dog shows. What? And her Shih Tzu Rocket won the toy (gasps) group at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show at Madison Square Garden on February 16, 2015. Then, oh, I got up to 2017. Oh, okay. At the 2017 show, Hearst's French bulldog, Tuggy, won Ooh. best of breed. So if you want to go to the notes, I got three pictures for you to look at. Them. Tuggy? So the first one says Patty Hearst now. This is what she looks like now in all her fabulous um, glory. Still beautiful. Um, Then there's one that says Shih Tzu. Yeah. That's Rocket. This is beautiful. Beautiful dog. Wow. The last picture says Frenchie. Yeah, and there's her with Tuggy. tuggy.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh! Oh, I want to play with the wrinkles on his face.
0: I know. So that's it. That's my case. The end. Patty Hurst. Patricia. Okay. Oh my god! I'm like, wow. (laughs) Your turn. Tell me things.
1: I'm about to. (laughs) Everybody in my story has Stockholm's. Okay, like all. It's crazy, I already covered one Stockholm case, and that was the girl in the box mhm it's It's really hard to top that one mhm but um i I found one that has like kidnapping and scandal and sexual acts and death and even aliens um <laughs> so I, I think I'm covering all of it. The only thing it doesn't have is like ghosts and stuff like that, so my story is about Jan Broberg, yay, mhm. In the early 1970s, Jan was kidnapped from her home in Idaho by a convicted pedophile who not only groomed her, but her entire family too. Her story is told in the Netflix documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. Go
0: watch it. After you you listen to this. Yeah.
1: Listen to this first because there's a few details that I just, oh my gosh, there's so much. Y'all have got to go watch it. Listen to me first. Do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then go watch it, because it's, oh my gosh, it's so good. All right. Jan was born on July 31st, 1962 in Pocatello, Idaho, to Robert, Bob, and Mary Ann Broberg. Jan was the couple's first child, and she was followed by two younger sisters, Karen and Susan. The Brobergs were a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. Of course. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, that, that's an accurate statement because actually, like, half of Idaho was Mormon and LDS, Latter-day Saints. So, I mean, it, they, they were everywhere. So, yeah, you're right. Bob worked as a florist. Marianne was a housewife. Jan, <laughs> okay, I know. I, I'm sorry. The, the stereotype is there. Even when you watch the documentary, you kind of start to wonder if maybe his stereotype fits. Yeah. Okay. She did have an extremely happy and normal childhood. Um, Her parents were always around. They were very supportive. They were always involved with them. Um, I do have pictures of Jan and her family. If you want to go to the notes. Okay. The first one is Jan Burberg. And that's her now. Okay. And then I have a picture of the whole family. Cheekbones.
0: I, I, she got some cheekbones. She's not the only one. Brain freeze. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> I got too excited. <laughs> okay, sorry. All right, Broberg family. I'm on it. Yeah. Okay. okay. There we go. So, come on.
1: Come on. It won't open. There it goes. Okay. All right. So that is her mother, Marianne. That's where she got them cheekbones from. There's the cheekbones. Then next to her is Jan. And then always get her sisters confused. (laughs) I believe that's Susan up top and Karen
0: on the bottom, but I could be wrong. Um, I think I just want to go ahead and throw this out there. Uh huh. Bob's expression Uh tells you he's a florist. (laughs) 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 I do. Okay. <laughs> Come on He's fabulous He's fabulous <laughs> Very much so
1: Oh my god Okay Now a little bit about our kidnapper Robert Birch told was a friend of the Broberg family A churchgoer And a pillar of the community He made the family feel special Their families actually met through church In 1972 And instantly hit it off Robert Birchtold and his wife, Gail had five children and they all quickly became best friends and spent a lot of time together with a corresponding friend for every family member pretty much. The families quickly grew close to one another and Birchtold became like a second father to Jan. Um, they would go on trips and boat rides and they would all carpool together to school um, but Robert, who soon became to be known as B, because that was just there's two Bobs, there's two Roberts. That's too confusing. <laughs> so they called him B. Don't know why. They don't even know why. It just started happening. He was actually more interested in nine year old Jan. He gave her a nickname as well Dolly.
0: Mm-mm. 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 No, no, mm-hmm.
1: no. I have a very fucked up quote.
0: splattering of clouds were set on fire by the rays of the setting sun. I looked at my dolly. Her face was in glow. She reached out and took my hand and said, I love you.
1: I returned, I love you too, beautiful. I turned to
0: her, put my arms around her and pulled her close to me and said, Dolly, you've brought a special light into my life.
1: It's nasty. He he was just so mesmerized by her.
0: I can't. I can't. Yep. Uh,
1: Oh, and the reason that we had all these recordings is because he used to walk around with a tape recorder. Of course he did, because all the
0: creepiest creepers do that. Yeah. So it's very convenient that we have all those. That makes me think of, like, the Susan Cox Powell case. Uh Uh-huh. And her father-in-law always, like, recording her and recording himself talking about... uh, uh, Yeah, yeah. That'll come in a future episode. I will cover that. Oh, it's, it's got to.
1: Anyway. But, yeah, I mean, he recorded Gail. He recorded Jan. Like, there's recordings of all of them talking. So, anyways, yeah. So, tape recorders were a new thing. and That's just what he wanted to do. Anyways, back to the subject matter. Jan said he was the kind of guy that was just helpful... These were her initial impressions of him. She said everybody loved him. He was the fun dad. They were always playing games and having campouts in their backyard on their big trampoline. I'm not going into that. Listen to the documentary. So there is a picture of Jan and B on a boating outing, happy and mm. not a care in the world, having a great time. And you get to see B. I hate it, and ew.
0: Put some clothes on, son. Ew. I know. Like, Get don't a know, tan. Nobody wants Do to something. see that. Put a shirt on. I don't want to. No. <laughs> He's not good looking. I. Do you remember Gabe from The Office and how they were always, always calling him Skeleton Man? Yeah. Skeleton Man. Okay.
1: He is now Skeleton Man. Mm-hmm. You're right. <laughs> okay. To Jan's parents, the special attention was a bit disturbing, but they brushed it off. B began grooming them from the very beginning as well. He had a silver tongue and was the type that could sell ice to an Eskimo. He was an excellent deceiver. Jan called him a master manipulator, and he
0: very much so was. And I just want to interject for a second. Like, I have to keep inserting that because... If you have a gut feeling Mm -hmm. that someone is treating your kid... Like, the way they are treating your kid makes you feel somehow uncomfortable. Listen to your fucking gut. Listen to your gut. <sighs> they they were so
1: infatuated with him as well. I mean, they would allow him to come sleep over. Yeah. In her bed. Creepy as fuck, y'all. Like, she shared a room with her sister Susan downstairs in the basement. And it was like a big open space. And to get closer to Jan, he was like, don't you two girls want a bed, like, your own bedroom? So, he built a wall. Oh, my gosh. To isolate her. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. They were comfortable with him. He could get them to do anything. Jan was kidnapped in 1974 and her parents couldn't believe that B meant her any harm. But her daughter, but their daughter had been drugged and taken thousands of miles away to the Mexican desert. Why? Why? Why did he take her to Mexico? To get married, of course. Of course. Because that's was, what you do.
0: She was 12. That's what you do when you fall in love with a 12-year-old. 40. Blech.
1: Blech. But in Mexico, that's totally legal.
0: 12 is the legal age. Or it was disgusting. then. I don't know what it is that's now. That's
1: disgusting. One Thursday afternoon, B called Mary Ann and asked if he could take Jan horseback riding. She said no because it was a school night and she had piano lessons and it was just not a good time. But he persisted and said that he would pick her up from piano and have her back by dinner. And Marianne was like, fine, as long as she's home before her dad gets home. Come on, Marianne. So he did. He handed her an allergy pill, quote, quote, Mm -hmm. when he picked her up and told her to take it before they got to the stables. And she soon became very sleepy and passed out. When Jan did not return home that night by nine o'clock, they began to get worried. Bob said they should call the police, but B's wife, Gail, persuaded them not to because it was probably just a misunderstanding and they would be home soon. What the. Gail, open your eyes. What if. Okay. So at this point, they're not assuming that he kidnapped her or that, you know, that there was any foul play. What if they had been in an accident? What if something. Dad yeah. had
0: happened to both of them. Because Gail knew he was a nasty fucking pedophile creep. Well, n- sh- yeah. Yeah. She had to know something was up. Well, and she he didn't did want have previous.
1: Call. Yeah. Mm hmm. But those were swept under the rug and nobody talked about those. So by that Saturday, they still had not returned. So Marianne was like, fuck this shit. I'm calling the FBI. So the office was unfortunately closed and directed her to call another number. But she didn't want to make a fuss, and she decided she'd just call back
0: on Sunday if they weren't back yet. I'm sorry. Bitch. But if Ashton's gone for, like, three hours, I'm making a fuss. Yeah. I'm gonna call the FBI after three hours. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't sit back for that. No. Uh -uh. That is your kid. You be extra as fuck. You make a fuss.
1: This whole case pisses me off so much. The whole thing. Well, by Sunday, they were not back. On day five... FBI agent Pete Welsh was finally contacted. He immediately jumped on the case. He was like, no, she's been kidnapped. And he got busy on it. Because he's like, what is wrong with you people? Right. I mean, he immediately reacted. So proud of this guy. They found his abandoned car, B's car, with the windows broken out from the inside. And there was blood on the driver's side door, but no sign of Jan or B. They noticed that there were other tire tracks that soon led them to the Birch Schultz Motorhome. Um, Gail discovered that it was missing from their storage unit. I have a picture of the car. Okay. And Pete Welsh was like, no, this is staged. Like, they made it look like maybe they were abducted and that they busted their way out from the inside of the car. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: We're not buying
1: it, B. Nope. Not one bit. Jan later woke up. Groggy and confused, in and out of sleep, she realized that she was in a moving vehicle and her hands and feet were bound. She, when she finally came to, she just realized that she was in Bertsold's motorhome and her restraints were gone. There was a small intertime intercom type box next to her that was playing a recording of some really strange voices. The voices identified themselves as, as Zeta and Zethra. And told her they were aliens and they were now in charge. And she was even half alien herself. She said that her mom was her mom, but her dad was not her real dad. Her dad was actually an alien. What? I, whatever. I can't even. And that the extraterrestrial species survival depended on her to procreate with the male companion of her choosing. Jan says she believed everything she heard. The message said, you will go to the front of their motorhome and meet the male companion. They'd been calling me the female companion this whole time. I get up, and who's lying on the little sofa of the motorhome? B! She was relieved. It was somebody she knew. She was like, oh, my God, at least I'm with somebody that I love and that I can trust, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was covered in blood, and she actually thought that he was dead. Um, She finally got him to wake up and she explained everything to him and so they started looking for a way to escape, but they found some instructional books instead about sex. Oh my god. And they read them together to get a better understanding of the mission. Oh my god. That's when he began molesting her.
0: Poor sweet baby girl.
1: Um, I'm not gonna go into detail but he didn't fully insert his entire penis just the tip um because he didn't want to damage her body plus there wouldn't be any evidence of sexual assault if he didn't go in far enough oh my god Mm -hmm. incredibly b would use this elaborate story to control and brainwash jan for the next four years I literally did anything the aliens told me to do, she explains, because they told me my little sister would be taken if I didn't fulfill the mission of having the child for their dying planet. Yeah. After five weeks of being with this asshole, the FBI tracked them down. But Jan was so scared to tell anyone about the aliens and the relaxation pills and the mission she had been told not to or bad things would happen to her family. Her dad would be killed, her sister Karen would go blind, and Jan would be vaporized. She was also instructed to stay away from all men, even her dad. Wow. I have another picture of Jan and B. He's holding her and they're hugging.
0: Oh, that's creepy creeper. She just loves creepy, him so much. Creeper. Mm,
1: very creepy. In the months before the kidnapping... Oh, God, this... Mm, here we go. <laughs> he'd persuaded both her mother and her father to have sexual relationships with him that meant mm. he could blackmail both of them into signing affidavits to show that he had consent to take jan to mexico the affidavits comprised the, SB, the compromised the fbi's case against b he was sentenced to five years probation and five years in prison All but 45 days of his prison sentence were suspended, and B, ended up only spending 10 days in prison.
0: That's ridiculous.
1: For that kidnapping charge. Ugh. Yep. So, he started with Jan's mother. He would compliment her, make her feel important, and most of all, attractive. He would tell her how awesome of a woman she was, and how she had a great body, and nice legs, and beautiful kids and he wished that he had met her before gail so they could have all these beautiful kids together instead and
0: oh my god it was
1: something she didn't get at home and she was completely captivated by him you know i mean like i don't know like her and bob had been married for a while and it doesn't seem like they had the greatest sex life <laughs> i don't know she was his first and uh-huh. vice versa um so it was something different And they even went on a church retreat one time. Her husband, Bob, did not go. And they hooked up.
0: Of course they did. They didn't
1: have sex, but they they hooked up. (laughs) He didn't stop with Marianne, though. He had a way with Jan's father, Bob, as well. One day, B went to see Bob at his florist shop and asked if they could take a drive because he was very frustrated with his life and his wife. He told Bob how their sex life was horrible and he really needed to get some relief. They joked and laughed about it, but uh, then she got real, and B told him that he really needed relief bad. And Bob like looked over and could tell that B was getting aroused. Oh, gross! And he somehow talked him into doing it for him. Told him, "Oh, Bob, come on, it's just kid stuff." Oh my gosh! And so Bob did. He jacked him off in the car right there. He gave him
0: a handy gross Mm -hmm.
1: on the side of the road. Oh my god! Good God! But it was all part of the plan to tear them apart to get close to Jan. Welsh told them to stay far away from the entire Birch told family, but did they? No. Of course. No, because I still have two more pages. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, they didn't. Marianne ended up having an eight month affair with her daughter's kidnapper. Honey. Yep. Yep. Fuck. Yep. And it worked. Almost. Almost. Um, Bob ended up filing for divorce after he found out about it. Because B called him and told him, hey, I fucked your wife. What the fuck? What What? is the point? What is the point? To tear them apart. He's just trying to tear apart the the family. So they can't team up against him. They'll all be separated. So Bob played with his penis.
0: Like, what if? I mean. (laughs) It's just kid stuff. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's it's what friends do. I'm sorry. No. no. Brittany, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry no. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh-uh.
1: I will look at you crazy and walk out. Nope. Um, but they, when Marianne went to go see her attorney, the attorney was like, wait a minute. You need to get the hell away from B. That's the problem. Not your husband. So they reconciled and they told B to fuck off and they patched things up. Thank God. But B continued to see and control Jan. They wrote love letters to each other. Ugh. She desperately wanted to be with him. She was miserable without him. And somehow, he bought a family fun center in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, um, one summer, and he wanted Jan to come out there and work for the summer, work at his family fun Mm-mm. center. And she really, really wanted to go. And somehow, B convinced Marianne to send her up there. So Marianne put oh her my on a God. plane. And send her baby up to B.
0: She's ridiculous.
1: Bob was like, fuck no. She did it anyways. Um, But he still had power over. And Jan was there for two weeks. And Marianne was finally like, okay, you're right. This isn't right. And she insisted that she came home. And she went and got her. Um, Jan was pissed. And she began acting out. And B was instructed not to contact them anymore. But he did. Of course. One night in August 1976, when Jan was 14, she voluntarily left with B. She left behind a note saying that she couldn't live with them or their screwed up morals anymore. And it was written to seem like she had run away by herself, but she didn't. What really happened is that uh, she snuck out the window one night and he came and got her. And he took her to California and enrolled her in an all-girls Catholic school posing as her father and a CIA agent, according to the documentary.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. He said he would be back every weekend and keep an eye on her. If anybody comes looking for her, don't tell them, because they're just trying to get me and all this kind of stuff. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I think her name when she was in the school was Jan Tobler or Tobler or something like that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. This kidnapping lasted for approximately four months, this is the second time he's... Yeah. ...taken her. Okay. Until November, when she was rescued again by the FBI in Salt Lake City. During this whole time, he was calling her parents, pretending like she wasn't with him. He'd be like, hey, I talked to Jan today. She's doing drugs and prostituting to get by.
0: Oh, my god. What the... Fu-
1: Why would you tell somebody that? But they were smarter than that, and they called the FBI, and the FBI tapped their phones and got all of these phone conversations... And they busted his ass and shipped him back to Pocatello. Jan returned home two weeks later, but this time it wasn't a happy reunion. She was emotionally gone. Like, she was just a shell. Yeah. But he got away with it pretty much because of those damn affidavits that they had signed, and the court um, ordered him into a mental facility instead in June 1977. Then he was released less than six months later.
0: Because after six months, pedophilia is cured. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, totally. That's all it takes. All it takes
1: is six months. (laughs) my God. The abuse in the alien story became part of Jan's life until she went to a summer camp. A drama camp. (laughs) Go, girl. Drama. As she approached her 16th birthday. Okay, now let me tell you. In the meantime, she was still freaking out about her 16th birthday deadline of having a kid. Oh, yeah. This whole time, she's going, oh, shit, oh, shit, what am I going to do? I can't be around Bob or B, whatever the fuck his name is. So, that's why she was, like, stressed out and depressed all the time. She hadn't let it go yet. Yeah. And they still actually had contact every once in a while. Yeah. But, um, she went to the summer camp and until then, she had avoided boys, but she... Met one that kind of caught her eye, and he bought her an ice cream, and she panicked and phoned home, phoned home, et phoned home. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, <laughs> I can't with you. <laughs> but everything was fine, so it was enough for her to start testing the waters. She said over the course of the next two and a half months. I would test little things, I would talk to a boy at school, and I accepted a date to the homecoming dance. I knew if I came home from that date and my dad wasn't dead, and my sister wasn't kidnapped or missing, and my other sister Karen wasn't blind, and I wasn't vaporized, then it wasn't real, and that's what happened. Slowly, she felt able to tell her family what had been happening to her. How she had been brainwashed and abused by a man the family had thought was a great friend. They had no idea. No idea. I wasn't able to talk definitely, definitively, or explicitly about the sexual abuse. It was really hard for me to do. I mean, can you imagine sitting there Uh, telling your parents... When Jan tells her story of years of abusive control, it seems hard to believe her parents hadn't spotted what was really going on. Just like you said, gut feeling. I'm sorry. I have so much words about these people. They I, they frustrate me so much. I don't care how good he was. I I've been in a narcissistic relationship. I get that. It does happen. But damn, I still knew... <laughs>
0: You should have. People you...
1: outside my family saw it clearer than I
0: did. Like, it, you yeah. just you, me and Steven watching that documentary. Oh my God. What is wrong with them? <laughs> no, seriously though, <laughs> no. what is wrong with okay. them? The whole time I'm going, <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me?
1: <laughs> what are you doing? I, I just
0: yeah, I can't whole, believe it's real time. life. This is real life. This really happened. It really, really happened.
1: Uh, she's but Jan said I don't think they had any inkling at all. I mean, literally, that was just not at all possible because the amount of love that he had showered on the family. Whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Over the next decade, Jan slowly disclosed what had happened to her, sought counseling and rebuilt her life. Get it, girl. Birch told because he was a free man. Mm-hmm. But he disappeared and he actually went and got married.
0: Of course he did. I think he had to like, a twelve year old in Mexico? No. It was it was a woman. <laughs> And I think they had two kids. What is wrong with her? A lot. And because ha- there's no way she couldn't have known. What happened to his first wife and his of kids he had with her? Ah, they got
1: divorced during the second kidnapping. Oh, okay. She left his ass. Okay. Took the kids, peaced out. Okay. Sorry. Smart. Yep. Very smart. Um. Over the next decade, blah, 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 Bertrand disappeared. Okay, Bertrand disappeared. So he returned three decades later turning up and harassing Jan at public speaking events. She and her mother wrote a book about all this. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one for the list. Yes. It's called Stolen Innocence. It was published in 2003, and it told her story. Her story. Mm -hmm. Well, that pissed him off. He started posting flyers all around town saying his version of it and saying that um, her parents gave him sexual control over her. Yeah, that they allowed it and all this other kind of bullshit. Uh, He's crying. Yeah, and calling them and making threats to, you know, stop the book tour and all that kind of stuff. But Jan brought stalking charges against him. Good girl. And finally faced her abuser in court. If you don't watch the documentary for anything else, watch this part because she gets to tell his ass off. Good girl. Yes. Mm -hmm. He was, after that, most likely going to jail for the rest of his life, but he killed himself before Ah, he could be sentenced. That pisses me off. Mm -hmm. He was at, um, he popped up at one of their speaking events one day, and actually there's a biker group called BACA, Bikers Against Child Abuse, Mm -hmm. that had started following them around and kind of being their bodyguards. And he showed up one day and they were like, holy shit, let's go get that asshole. There he is, right there. Well, one of them jumped on the hood of his car and he ran over him or something like that. And um, Bob B had a gun on him, so they were able to arrest him because that was a probation violation. Awesome. Yeah. Little
0: side note there's a chapter of that uh, biker club mm-hmm. here. Yeah. That I have seen at the courthouse when we have gone for foster care to juvenile oh. court, coming with certain kids. Oh, to court. God. Oh. Yeah. And you know, if you see them, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh. And then, like, to see those kids hugging on those big biker men and them getting emotional, too, because they're like a little support system oh, for these them. kids. It's awesome. I love them. I love what they do. Yeah. That's, that's
1: so amazing. You want to know how he killed himself? <laughs> mm hmm. He went home and took all of his heart medication and drank. A bunch of white Russians. (laughs) Uh. Yeah. He only served 15 days total for the abuse and rape of Jan. Mm. And for subsequent abuse of other youngsters. Of course. Six other women have actually come forward with stories about him to Jan. I'm not surprised. She's still speaking out, reminding people to look for abusers who hide it in plain sight. She wants people to trust their gut and keep looking instead of turning away. Thank you Queen. her mother's actually an advocate for this as well and be- went back to school and she became a social worker and they're they're both spreading the word um, her father actually passed away like right before the Netflix documentary aired mm-hmm. but he did get to see it well, that's he, good. he did get to see a private screening of it so and they were happy with it. They they finally It is told what all. it is. Yeah, yeah. It is what it is. Jan says she hopes after hearing her story, other survivors will feel empowered to move forward with their own life and fix what's
0: broken after hearing her story. The end. Well thanks for feeding me that garbage before I go to bed. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen the documentary and I've heard a couple little pods on it. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've remembered the story but not all the details, so is there anything that i missed that you think i should no like bring into light <laughs> like i said like i knew the story mm-hmm. the gist of it mm-hmm. but i didn't remember all the details cuz it's been so long so that was great it's so fucked up so yeah there you go abducted in plain sight yay
1: stockholm syndrome <laughs> <laughs> it's a doozy <laughs> right yeah okay
0: well Go to Apple and tell us what you thought about that one, guys. <laughs> yeah, please um, like, please rate and review and share us with your friends. And we, uh, we just want to grow and expand. And we want to get some feedback from you guys as, you know, if there's something that we should be doing and we're not doing. Yeah. Or something you'd like to hear from us. Like, let us know. Communicate with us. In writing, because we'll probably forget what you told us. Yes. You, you're <laughs> going to have to put it in the writing. Um, that would help clarify what you're exactly trying to get across yeah. as well. But if you have any suggestions um, about the pod um, or different topics that you'd like to hear, because we want to make sure we're covering mm-hmm. uh, covering subjects y'all want to hear. Um, Tasty hump day treats. Yes. Because we always need ideas for those. Yeah. Um let us know. Contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. Odditiesandcuriositiespod at com. Yeah, we're on Twitter, too. Yeah, we're on the Twitter. We are on the Twitter. Amanda's on the Twitter, if you're yeah. going to be honest. Amanda's on the Twitter. <laughs> also... Don't forget about our super special ha- Halloween, super special Halloween listener episode coming up. Yeah, we want to be able to give y'all a bonus episode. It's going to
1: come out on Halloween. So send us your stories. If you want to hear extra from us, your lovely, wonderful hostesses, ghostesses
0: <laughs> with the mostesses.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we want to do it. So we need a few more. Yes. Give, give us some. Spooky season's coming. Mm. Yes. I'm so ready.
0: And, oh, so I realized earlier that last week <laughs> we neglected to do shout outs.
1: Girl, we were ready to go out.
0: <laughs> it's true. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. But we- I didn't even notice it. <laughs> we failed. That's okay. So, we're making
0: up for it now. We'll we'll do um, shout outs with applause. Oh, okay. Afterwards. Okay. So... Shout out to Amanda, Craig, and Steven for art and music and editing. Good job, guys. Yay! <laughs> Woo! Yeah, you number one! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was your super special shout out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like it. Okay, and I think that's it, huh? Yeah. That's all we got. Yeah. Okay, till next time. Yep. Bye, you guys. Bye-bye. <laughs> Hehehehe. <laughs>